Welcome to the Unscripted Podcast, where we chat with some of our friends, former guests, and industry pals. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. Today, we have back on the show a writer, producer, showrunner who has worked on everything from CSI New York, The Messengers, Rush Hour Revolution, Supernatural, and now he's on the new series, APB, which premieres February 6th, 9, 8 Central on Fox. He's also a professor at USC, you know, with all of his abundant free time. <laughs> He's a scholar and a true gentleman. We yeah. are in his office here at Burbank Studios. I'm talking with Mr. Trey Calloway. Thanks for coming on again, Trey. Thank you, Kevin. Nice to be back. It's always great talking to you. Um, let's start off with uh, what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, APB. APB. Your new show. I, I've seen the trailer for it. It looks great. It reminds me a little, it's not dark like RoboCop, but it has that sort of you know, like bringing technology into policing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know where it's going to go. I'm assuming it's not going to be gigantic robots shooting people. No, it is definitely not that. <laughs> but it has elements of, again, technology bringing it into solving uh, crimes and things. That's what it looks like. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about the yeah. show. Yeah, well, APB is a, uh, a brand new crime procedural that, as you said, is going to debut on Monday nights beginning February 6th on Fox. It is, uh, I like to think of it as a. Uh, we describe it often as a crime procedure that's actually about something mm-hmm. more than just solving crimes. Um, in that, uh, it tells the basic story of a billionaire technocrat, uh, Elon Musk-like, adored public figure named Gideon Reeves, who is uh, uh, through a series of personal circumstances finds himself in the city of Chicago, which is sadly, depending on the day, either the country's first or second most violent city. Uh, but he finds himself there on business and through a random act of violence his closest friend and business colleague is killed and in the subsequent investigation it's really Gideon's first chance to be immersed into the realities of what it means to be a cop uh, in in modern-day Chicago much less pretty much any American city uh, where traditionally cops although you know they are they are tasked with doing very difficult work very noble but very difficult work they tend to be overworked and underfunded that's the case that uh, Gideon finds himself facing and he sees the the police district which is tasked with investigating his friend's murder uh, for what they are which is really good people who essentially have their hands and feet tied behind their backs and uh, and he, it represents an engineering problem as he sees it through his own particular unique brand of genius. And so through a series of circumstances, he winds up taking over that police district in a very controversial move and funding them, giving them all the resources that they need to be good cops. But right. what's different about it from a RoboCop scenario is this is not far-fetched science fiction in the future. It's all very real, very grounded technology that's available today. Um, but that most police districts would never even be able to think of because of under-budgeting. Right, uh, so right. he gives them all these new tools and resources, but uh, we are very careful on, a, on an episodic basis to make clear that technology, while super cool and often super helpful, is never the end-all be-all. It doesn't fix everything, and it certainly doesn't fix a lot of what ails us societally in this country. Right. And so he is paired then with a very seasoned police detective uh, who has been a cop on the streets for a long time and who has her own unique skill sets but also perspective on what it means to be a good cop. And so 
moving forward in series, while it is a crime of the week and an investigation of the week and has all the awesome thrills and chills and action that you would expect and want from a crime procedural, it's actually a cop show that's about something. It's about the way that technology impacts all of our lives. It's mm -hmm. about the way it connects us, but also the ways it disconnects us. Um, and it's really kind of fascinating. I think it's it's the right time and the right place for this kind of a show, and we're super proud of what we've been shooting so far on location in Chicago, Illinois. Right. Um, shooting in Chicago, uh, before we talk about some of the fun stuff that we were talking about earlier, which mm -hmm. I, I'm just curious about, which I think is fascinating. What was it like being in Chicago during the World Series and the, and uh, the Cubs win? Gosh, that was fantastic. Yeah. Um, you know, I... <coughs> I went to game six of the playoffs, took a friend of mine for his birthday. Uh, he's a uh, diehard Chicago fan. I, I, I don't know how you live in Chicago and not be a Cubs fan, unless you're a Sox fan, with respect to Sox fans, but he's a diehard Cubs fan. I took him to game six of the playoffs. He mm -hmm. literally showed up at Wrigleyville with a Dodgers hat that he made me wear, knowing that I'm a Dodgers <laughs> fan. So I, I, I really took my life into my own hands walking into Wrigley Field. but. It was, the excitement was so infectious and so overwhelming mm -hmm. uh, and the emotion was so palpable that when they finally won and made it into the series, I, I was the first to take my hat off and throw my new hat in with the Cubs for the run of it. Um, it energized that city in a way that I've never seen before in an urban environment. Um, it was so tribal and then I was in a bar, Chicago bar. Uh, with one of our writers, Matt Pitts, who I think has been a guest on yeah, uh, that's great. on your your podcast before, and Pitts and I were in a bar watching with his family when the Cubs won the series, and it was the most incredible outpouring of emotion I've ever seen from a group of strangers. I mean, strangers hugging and crying right. and cheering, and I when I walked back to my hotel later that evening, um, just the the cacophony of sound. Because this is a podcast, uh, uh, I should try and share this. This was, this. I recorded this on my phone. This is literally the sound uh, of uh, Michigan, Ave Michigan Avenue uh, moments after the Cubs win. <laughs> that is the chorus of horns that went on. I finally fell asleep at around 3.30 in the morning and it was still going. With sirens and people screaming, and and it just never stopped. So that was uh, that was quite exciting place to be. Uh, when, Did it affect all that went down. production at all anywhere? Thankfully, anywhere? it didn't. It it could have easily because we shoot all over the streets of Chicago. Mm -hmm. But the day of the parade, which five million people attended, it's now the largest gathering of human beings in American history, and I think seventh largest in human history. Really. Um, mm. Thankfully, that day we were shooting way out in the suburbs of a place called Blue Island, Illinois, so we were nowhere near downtown. Mm -hmm. But um, I remember I had to get my car out that morning from the hotel at like 6 a.m. after a, a nearly all-night shoot the night before just because they were shutting down so many streets and couldn't guarantee uh, that you'd actually be able to leave. So it was, uh, it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> um, fun. Very fun. Um, how did it come together? How did you get involved with the show? How did the whole show came come together? Right. Well, uh, APB uh, was an original pilot that was uh, written by David Slack and Matt Nix. Hmm. Um, Matt Nix, you may uh, know from his work on past series, Burn Notice and yep. Complications, The Good Guys. Um, 
And uh, they shot the pilot. Len Weissman uh, directed it. A tremendously successful uh, uh, director. And um, pilot was picked up by Fox. And uh, Matt Nix and I then partnered to co-show run the series. And we hit the ground running in June and have been at it with our staff here in Burbank and then going back and forth to production in Chicago ever since. Mm -hmm. We will be finished with production on our first season uh, in mid-January. Right now we're shooting episode 9 of a 12 order, so we're a little past the halfway point, uh, but it's been really, really tremendous. It's a, it's a show that um, we often say sort of our sweet spot is that it exists at this sort of mythical intersection between policing and technology and character. And we don't ever want to go too far down any of those streets. If we go too down, too far down Technology Street, then it becomes RoboCop or Minor sure. Minority Report. Those are not. Those are great stories, but they're right. not the stories that we're telling. Right, right, right. If it goes too far down Policing Avenue, then it becomes just a cop show, and it loses what makes our particular show unique. Uh, and uh, and then character. If we were going to error in any way, we would we would probably stay the most firmly down Character Avenue, but. That's, uh, it is very, very um, rich in its character. Uh, and we've got some tremendous performers. Justin Kirk is, is our lead. He was male lead in Weeds and has been in a million things. Everyone loves him. And Natalie Martinez is, uh, uh, is our co-star. She was on Under the Dome and most recently Kingdom. Mm -hmm. um, she's tremendous. Uh, Ernie Hudson, you know, one of the original Ghostbusters. Just a, a tremendous cast. Um, of LA actors, also a lot of great local Chicago performers, where there's such a, a great and deep talent pool. So you know, very character-rich drama. I feel like we're making a cop show that that at least I haven't seen before, and right. that we are all thoroughly enjoying. Can't wait to share with everybody. Um, now, talking about a show that you know is a cop show, mm -hmm. but also your sort of unique. Perspective, meaning you know, looking at it through the lens of you know, technology and how it can, you know, help in these situations mm -hmm. and how it sort of infuse it is with our everyday lives. Um, what sort of again? How do you sort of monitor that and keep that sort of in line and not stray? Because it's very easy yeah. with a lot of shows yeah. to go way too far into technology being basically you know you push a few buttons and like everything kind of falls into place. We see a yeah, lot of different yeah. shows without naming anything. I've done it on shows <laughs> in the past. <laughs> right, where it basically solves the crime for you because it's so smart, but yeah. yet still sort of remain on that, you know, you're, I'm sure your core characters, you know, you have to, to develop them and they have to hopefully organically with the assistance of technology rather than technology sort of being that lead horse. Right, right. Uh, it, you know, it's about uh, making sure that we that we kick the tires. And to be specific about that, you know, in each story, I've, I've often said in the room, like, if we're going to put carbon fiber tires on one of our cool new District 13 Cadillacs, mm -hmm. then we better make sure we kick those tires as hard as we can. In other words, yeah, let's explore the benefits of a technology in any given episode, but let's also make sure that we explore and own whatever the new limitations are it creates for us. Right. You know, we all have this amazing cell phone in our pockets that that connects us with the world, and I'm the first guy to say, I, man, I love the way I can talk to my phone when I'm walking right. around the streets of Chicago and it'll direct me where I need to go or I can get into my pickup truck out in the parking lot and it'll start itself for me and I can, you know, have it... 
uh, buy me movie tickets. That's super cool technology, but I'm also the first guy to admit that I, I'm not a big fan of arguing with my teenage kids via text when we're in the same <laughs> damn house. <laughs> right. Right? So technology pulls us together, it also pushes us apart. And as long as we as writers on APB are constantly exploring both sides of that issue, then that's what will keep us from going too far down, you know, press a button, solve a crime. Right. Uh, territory, that's not where we want to be. It's, it's, and it's, you know, even without the technology, policing itself in this country, probably around the world, but we're an American show, policing in this country has never been more complicated. And these sure. people, God bless them, they're, in my mind, I often equate cops with teachers in that we expect the world from them and we offer very little in return other than criticism. Right. Right? So... Um, they're the offensive linemen of... Yeah, you know, they are literally on the front service. lines of, of not just public service, but, uh, you know, they have to deal on a daily basis with very direct reflections of everything that ills us or ails us as a society. Right. And, uh, and they got to clean up the mess. And, and, we, and certainly there are bad ones, just like there are bad writers, there are bad journalists, there are bad sure. garbage men. But, um, but, but by far and large, and certainly in my experience, most of them are not. Most of them are, are dedicating their lives to being peacekeepers and to the noble work of police work and to answering the call when you're in an accident or someone tries to break into your home mm -hmm. or, God forbid, someone's assaulting you. You want to know that when you pick up that phone or you dial 911 or in the case of our show, you use the APB app, right. someone on the other end is going to take care of you. Right. Right. So... Those stories in and of themselves are, are complex. Uh, that's why I think one of the reasons why people like police drama as much as they do. But then when you add this extra layer of technology to it, which is ever present in the world we're living in right now, then it really becomes a really rich stew to draw from for story. Right. So we're having a great time with it. That's fantastic. Um, I'd be remiss if we didn't start, if we didn't talk a little bit, not start, but talk a little bit about uh, Staffing. You know, a lot of our listeners are aspiring writers yeah. or starting writers. Yeah. Um, and last time we did talk, you know, <coughs> general advice for new staff writers, showrunner meetings, things like that. Mm -hmm. But uh, I'd like to continue that conversation. Sure. And talk a little bit about maybe things that you think that new writers getting meetings with either a network, uh, although, um, uh, or a showrunner or even a lower level meetings on a TV series, right. things that they should focus on and things that they should avoid. Things that they should focus on, things that they should right. avoid. Things to prepare, things to not say, <sighs> things to be sure to bring up. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, okay, so there's there's different different kinds of pitching, right? Right. Uh, on, you know, I teach a pitching class at USC, but mm -hmm. the, a general meeting and the way you might present yourself or pitch yourself there is very different from the way you would need to pitch yourself in a writer's room. Or, or even uh, the way you might need to pitch yourself in a in a meeting with a with a showrunner for a potential job. But I would say in in most of those cases, one common thread in terms of advice that I would would give is to sort of uh, focus on your special power. Right? We all have them. Actually, we have more than one. And, and in my class, I often refer to these as shiny objects. We all have many. Of them. <laughs> we all have many of those. Um, but depending on the gig, depending on the person or people that you're meeting with, you know, you might want to you might want to be selective about which shiny object you take off the shelf to present, 
right? So uh, what, what are those interesting aspects of your personal life, of your professional experience, um, yeah, might be best suited for sharing with the individuals that you're going to sit down and meet with for the first time? Mm -hmm. What's going to help you rise above the din? And what, what, what is going to make you the most memorable? Um, Can you explain maybe what some of these shiny objects would be in, like, yeah, in a literal sense? Absolutely. Well, in a lot of cases, um, uh, personal experience is a big one, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, <coughs> where are you from? What are some of the most unique experiences that you might have had in your life that, again, seem also uniquely suited or, or specially suited to whatever job it is you're looking for? If it's a comedy, you know, and it's a working class comedy, then you may want to be able to speak to working class experience in your life or blue collar, you know, paths that you've taken. Uh, and, and ideally, since pitching yourself for a comedy or meeting for a comedy also comes with an extra set of rules that, <laughs> that require you to just be funny from sure. the moment you walk in the room. But those stories, those, those different ways that you choose to be funny should be informed by the experience that's directly applicable to the job, mm -hmm. right? Um, that, that's a thing. A another th a thing that's useful to do, and I was literally just talking to a, a young writer, super talented, um, young writer named Sinead Daly the other day, and she just has finished up a run on uh, The Get Down. Hmm. And actually, she's still on it, technically, but they don't know what's going to happen with The Get Down. Um, but she, you know, she was talking about uh, how she frames herself in general meetings, and I don't want to spill all of her beans, but sure. the, the essence of it is, you know, she was comparing <coughs> the way she likes to write and the, and the strengths she has as a writer were very similar to a particular photographer that she could speak about passionately. And she used the lens, pardon the pun, of, of this particular photographer's work as a way to expose the kinds of stories she likes to tell, right? Mm -hmm. So she was being very visual and descriptive gotcha. in the way she was sharing her unique abilities with people in general meetings. And, and I think to the extent you can as a young writer starting out, and quite frankly, even as an old uh, <laughs> bald fat hack like me, you wanna <laughs> like hold on to the necessity of being able to distill the essence of yourself. The same way when you're, when you're trying to pitch a feature or you're trying to pitch a, a series, you know, you're not gonna sit there and, and spend two hours in the room telling them beat for beat for beat what happens. Right. You're also not gonna walk somebody through, you know, uh, uh, all the details of your life. You're gonna cherry pick those aspects of yourself, your creative self or your experiential self and, and, and speak to those in the opportunity you've been given in a general meeting or in, in, a, in, a, in a project specific pitch meeting so that you're, you're communicating to those executives or those showrunners like, oh, there's something not only different about this person and memorable about this person and or their point of view creative, uh, creatively, but there's something specific about this person that will lend itself well to the room I'm trying to build. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so that's, th that, that, that's the kind of thing that I, I always look for. Like, you, you know, when you're trying to staff a show, and people have different showrunners have different opinions about this, but mm -hmm. I, I, I certainly don't want a room filled with the same voice. I, I want people to come from 
different experiences, different walks of life. Uh, and I want them to have different skill sets. You know, they're, here we are, again, we're doing a, a, a procedural. I, there are people in our writer's room who are, you know, who have great past experience working on procedurals. They know that, that lingo, they know those formulas, the, they're particularly helpful in, in breaking stories, hitting their twists and turns. There are also people, you know, we have a, a writer on staff who was a former Chicago police officer for mm. 10 years, okay? Well, there's a shiny object if ever <laughs> right. there were one, right? right that's right. That's somebody who has direct experience on the streets of the city we're filming in. Uh, we have another person who was in Air Force Intelligence oh. and was a part of the group of individuals who helped uh, ultimately figure out where Bin Laden was, uh, right. who has an enormous um, depth of experience in interrogations. Um, needless to say, that's, that's incredibly useful. Uh, you know, and people who've worked on genre shows, people who have worked on much more character-driven, serialized drama, who can help us, you know, carry the torch on the soapier aspects of the show and the more character-driven stuff. So you, you, you want to find different kinds of people, and so when, I, when I'm trying to advise somebody who's gonna go in and have a meeting on a show or just go in and have a meeting with general executives, like, Really put some thought in advance into what is my what are my shiny objects that are best for this meeting, or you know another way of putting it is again focus on what's my special power. What is what am I going to bring to the table mm -hmm. that maybe nobody else will, and then don't be afraid to use it. Don't be afraid to talk about it. It's usually what got you into that meeting in the first place. You right. just have to sort of recognize that and take ownership of it. Right. Not be afraid to share it. Now uh, I know everybody has a story. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a unique aspect to their background. Mm -hmm. But for those individuals who may not think that they have that shiny enough of an object in that sense, are there other things that, that are skills or other things that they could bring to the table that might be appealing? Or even if they feel that they have a great story and a great lens to, to, to view the world, a great viewpoint to add, a great voice to add to this room, are there other things that yeah, would help? Yeah, I mean, well look, if you don't think you have that shiny object or those shiny objects, <laughs> you're in trouble. You're a hundred percent wrong. Right. Right. You do. Yes, you may be in trouble <laughs> because what I would encourage you to do is is figure out what they are anyway. Sure. And and sure. and I think to sort of speak, p part of what you're suggesting because I, I know writers like this. I've certainly had students like this who right. are just not necessarily a hundred percent comfortable talking about themselves. Right. Right. They would, they would, they're better on the page than they might be on the stage and they would prefer to just sort of keep quiet, hunkered down and, uh, and, and type away. And, and that's great because you got to keep writing, but you're going to have to, this, this is a very, as to use the, the overtired expression, it is a very collaborative medium. You're going to have to learn how to collaborate. Mm -hmm. So maybe one thing that I've encouraged people to do in the past is if you're uncomfortable talking uh, initially about what your shiny objects might be, then go ask somebody you know who knows you very Smart. well yeah. to, to pitch you, to like, tell me about myself. What is it about me that you find interesting? Right. You know, sounds like an exercise in ego, but <laughs> in truth, it's, it's very helpful because you do have to step outside of yourself sometimes and see yourself as a bankable commodity the same way you might regard your work. Sure. Right, and you and your work are very different, difficult to separate since one comes from the other. Right. So you need to sort of also look at yourself in terms of how do how would I pitch the essence of myself? 
we're all very comp you know a, one of my dear friends who I think has also done this podcast Paul Grelong yeah uh, was the first to expose me to this beautiful expression which I've taken on as my own ever since which is that we are all many things ah. uh, we are all many things yeah. right but but you, you don't have time in the average 20 minutes to share all of your many things with someone sure so what is what is the essence of some experience that I've had in my life personally or professionally that I know I can sit down across from somebody and share um, uh, and, and that's, that's all, honestly, that's what most people want out of a meeting. They just, they, if you're having a meeting with a showrunner, you're only having that meeting in the first place because they've already read you. Right. Right? So the, they've already vetted your material. Mm -hmm. You've already been sold to them by a studio exec or a network exec or an agent or a manager, and then they've read you. So really what those meetings become about then is a couple of things. One, they just want to hear your voice. They want to see the passion in your face and in your eyes and they want to know what excites you as a storyteller. They also secondarily, if you're sitting in my position and you're meet, you know, taking staff meetings, <coughs> you just want to know that you're going to be able to spend a lot of time in a room with this person, right? right? <laughs> because to a certain extent, again, once you're at the, sitting across from a showrunner, they've already read your stuff, they already like your stuff, so then it, to a certain extent it becomes them trying to do a balancing act of different kinds of personalities mm -hmm. they're going to be in a relatively small space for several months right, right? so you kind of want to get a good sense of what people's interests passions quirks issues are so that you can put together a room that's going to feel like a healthy family because that's essentially what you're doing is, right is creating a new family um i don't know if that helped but no absolutely um um, I know a lot of the path to becoming a staff writer. There are a few that are sort of tried and true, whether it's the uh, fellowships mm -hmm. for a lot of people, mm -hmm. diversity fellowships, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, as well as being an assistant, a showrunner's assistant, a writer's assistant. Um, we've covered a lot of the fellowships before. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to talk about the assistant role um, in terms of, from your perspective, I've talked to actual showrunners assistants, right. we've had them on the podcast before. I know, I was uh, going to say, you want to get Adam in here? For yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but specifically from your point of view, from a showrunner's point of view, why is hiring, other than the fact that you're familiar with them and you know they're decent human beings, right. hopefully, right. Uh, what is it about having an assistant and promoting from within, what value, additional value do they bring? Uh, and, and other than maintaining my sanity on a daily basis sure. <laughs> <laughs> and functioning as a critical second brain. Um, no, I, I mean like bringing them on as a staff writer, promoting them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, and in fact, we've done that uh, in particular uh, with this show. One of our one of our new staff writers, a first-time staff writer who was my partner, Matt Nix's assistant oh, cool. prior to this. Um, well, first of all, you've gotten to know them. Mm -hmm. So that personality game that I was just talking about in right. terms of, are you right for a room? You know, can I spend a lot of time in a small room with you? Right. Uh, you've already gotten past that. If they, if they have been your assistant for any period of time at all, that automatically suggests it's because on some level you like actually spending time around them. And, <laughs> right. and, and, uh, and that works. You've also had an opportunity by that point usually to get a much better gauge of their creative chops, their mm. creative strengths, right? Um, you know, showrunners assistants are, are, are often asked to do all kinds of things from reading and noting documents uh, to, you know, sometimes making pitches of their own for, you know, 
character or scene work, whatever. So you've sort of gotten better than the average person, certainly. You've, you've had an opportunity to sort of gauge some of their strengths mm -hmm. uh, and figure out what their skill sets are. Um, you know, and I, I, I think conversely, as the assistant, I think one of the one of the, the best things about being an assistant is is access, right? So you have this, right. you have a daily array of opportunities to make yourself invaluable to everybody on staff, from the showrunner on down, including you know uh, the, the 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 junior staff writers. Um, that ultimately invests all of them in your success as well. So that's the great thing from, from their side. But from my side, it's sort, of a, it's sort of a no brainer. And it's also, you know, in terms of bringing an assistant up uh, to, to a writer level, as, as soon as those opportunities present themselves, I would always prefer sure. where possible to, to turn within. It's one of the reasons why too, you know, I've been now blessed to be teaching at USC long enough that it's, as I think I might have said before, not only is it hard to run into a studio or a network without running into former students of mine, but, but it's also become a really great talent pool because now I've had a double chance to, to sort of to vet. You know, I've, I've seen them in class, mm -hmm. I'm familiar with their writing, I see their pitch abilities, I see their ability to sit at a conference table with a bunch of other fellow students. So there's already a comfort level that makes me that much more willing to give them a shot at being a PA or an assistant or right. a writer's assistant, um, and, you know. And then by the time you've you've gotten to know them better in that professional realm, then yeah, ideally when there are opportunities that arise, that's those are the people that I would tend to want to go to first to try and promote within. Right. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the writers' room mm -hmm. um, because it's especially for a lot of newer writers who you know uh, understand the structure of screenwriting, whether it's TV and or features, and they've read books on it. That that's sort of its own thing, right. meaning it's it's very unique and individual to every writers' room. But it's also something that you can't really I I, I don't know if you can't, but I think it'd be very difficult to sort of teach. Mm -hmm what goes on in a writer's room, because everyone is sort of different. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I always like to ask. Um, so that being said, what goes on in a writer's room? Uh, the madness. You know, <laughs> madness. Um, you know, the hierarchy, uh, and specifically mm. what the role of a staff writer is in that room. And again, I know it, it, it can vary based on the showrunner, how involved they are, how, um, uh, how much sort of input they're allowed yeah, or, yeah. or even encouraged to have right. totally varies um, but you know just using maybe APB or one of your previous shows as an example what goes on in a writer's room you know what's the hierarchy like and what is the role of the staff writer what are different personalities that are in the room that you know newer writers should be aware of yeah yeah well things of that nature <coughs> you know with APB we made it clear Matt and I both from day one that we want everyone to have a voice, right? Right, and the best idea wins. So whether right. that comes from the PA or it comes from one of us is irrelevant, as long as it takes us all down the same path toward let's make a great show. Mm -hmm. um, and I've worked on other shows in the past where, generally speaking, that was still the case. Where you know whether you were a writer's assistant or you were a baby staff writer, um, you were you were openly encouraged to to use your voice. Um, 
Obviously, as you correctly suggest, it doesn't work that way in all rooms. Um, there are some rooms where hierarchy is is, uh, <coughs> is held onto tooth and nail, where you're not supposed to rise above your station, you're not supposed to speak until spoken to. I, I don't, I hear about those rooms. I'm, I'm so disinterested in that experience. Mm -hmm. It's so foreign to me that that's just not, that would never be a part of, of, of my reality as a showrunner. But but I suppose if you find yourself in that situation, and frankly, regardless of what kind of situation you are, I think probably the first rule of being a staff writer uh, or, or a writer's assistant, when you first find yourself in a writer's room, I think one of the, the best ways to successfully navigate that new situation for yourself is to pay very close attention to the room you're in and learn to read it the same way you have to learn to read strangers you meet, mm -hmm. you know, for the first time. Um, and and m usually you do that by staying focused and being a good listener before you open your mouth, right? And really take a look around and 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 uh, pay attention to to the cues. If you're in a if you're in a very quiet you know, studious, thoughtful, research-driven room, then you should probably be quiet and studious <laughs> and thoughtful as well, and right. then wait for a dialogue to begin. Right. If you're in a room where you know the loudest, funniest joke wins, then do what you can to rise above that din, right? right. If you're in a room that's very collaborative and you know where there's open dialogue encouraged on a daily basis, make sure you're a part of that dialogue. Um, one mistake, common mistake that I've seen writers' assistants or staff writers make is once they've if they've properly read the room, mm -hmm. a common mistake I've seen is not following those rules that the room is setting. So again, if it's open dialogue encouraged, make yourself a part of that dialogue. Right. Right? Allow that inner voice creatively to, to, to come out. Don't sit back quietly waiting to be called on in class, right? Because right. it's not class anymore. It's a writer's room and your job depends on it and you're there this is another thing that I always encourage writers to remind themselves of whether they're going into a, a general meeting or they're walking into a writer's room. Um, if, if they could do it without you, they would. Right. But they have decided for whatever reason they need you there. So honor that decision by allowing your voice to be heard, mm -hmm. right? Super, super important. Um, I think another thing, I think another thing that's important is uh, to make sure as a new writer in a writer's room that you are a, you, you quickly distinguish yourself as a problem solver, not just a problem acknowledger. Right. Or worse, a problem creator. <laughs> like you don't want to be those people. You want to be the person who sits back and, you know, again, I'll, I'll cite Matt Pitts in this uh, instance because. I do that all the time. I, you know, he's, he's just. We should all be like Matt. <laughs> but uh, but I remember, you know, I remember first falling in love with him as a writer on Revolution, just watching the way uh, he might not have been the most talkative person in the room, but he was very observant. He was an, a, a master listener. And so he would process a bunch of other people's open, you know, sort of uh, 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 dialogue, if that's the word to use. I, I might have said vomit in certain cases. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But stream of, of consciousness yeah. is just spewing. Right. And then, he, and then he would watch as we all sort of inevitably 
painted ourselves into corners or completely jammed every log uh, of story we could. And then he would be the guy who would go, you know what we might do? <laughs> and then he would break the log jam. Right. Right. He would pitch the solution and everyone would be like, <gasps> the golden child, you know, and so that's that's a thing. That's that's about reading the room and really listening, not just to what people are saying, but what are the problems that are being sure. raised, and and really thinking through a solution. But then critically, not being afraid to try and give it voice to a solution for that problem. Mm -hmm. Right? Don't just sit back and wait for somebody else to pitch it. Because I guarantee I've been in that situation myself, where you're like, God. You know, Susie Snowflake over there just pitched the exact same problem solution I had about 15 minutes ago, right. but I sat on it. Right? Uh, so don't do that. Um, also, don't, uh, in a writer's room, never pitch against an idea. You may, you may disagree mm -hmm. with someone's approach. If you, if you disagree that strongly, then just let them have their pitch and then, you know, uh, when all dialogue about that pitch has been exhausted, then it might be your turn to sort of step up and pitch an alternative. Uh, or, you know, so don't pitch against someone. Don't, you know, right on the heels of someone's pitch say, well, no, I think, and then you pitch your idea. Oh, right. You know, <laughs> um, a, a better way to handle that is to sort of pitch with or pitch off someone's idea. You know, it's, I mean, this is a, it, it seems simple, but it's a, it's a standard line that I try to import into every room from day one, which is, you know, can I can I pitch off of that? Right. Well, you just pitched, which is my way of saying I might have a slightly different idea, but mm -hmm. I'm not disregarding yours. Right. Right. right? I, I want to I want this to be feel like more of a conversation, and maybe between the two of us, we'll come up with a third idea that's far better than either of ours. Sure. Um, so, but that's a thing that that actually people are very sensitive to, especially sensitive writer types. So that's a that's a thing I would recommend. Um, I think also uh, most writers' rooms, I bet this would be pretty uh, common if you talk to showrunners, uh, most writers' rooms, and in fact many showrunners will actually actively look for in their writers' room some kind of a contrarian. Hmm. Someone who isn't afraid to say, I think you're all smoking crack and this is not the best idea. The right? devil's advocate kind the of The devil's thing. advocate to gotcha. a certain extent. Now, I, I would caution most new writers, <laughs> uh, that might not be the position you want to occupy as a first time staff sure. writer. Uh, that's something that you, you probably need to earn the right to be. Right. Um, but having said that, again, this is about reading the room, so you may have you may have a showrunner who actively encourages dissent and debate, right, uh, as a way to get at the truth or whatever is the best idea. Um, again, it's going to be about reading the room, but I usually find that in, in, in one room or another, uh, there's always somebody who, whose who's special power right. is to poke holes and, uh, and keep you honest. Uh, so, so, so that's a thing. Um, I don't know what I, if, if I have any other pearls of wisdom to offer in terms <laughs> of rooms. I, you know, I, one, one other one would be just when you walk into that room every day, uh, you know, to, uh, to borrow from the old and, and really date myself, to borrow from the old We Are the World uh, uh, production sessions where they had the sign over the door that said, uh, check your ego at the door. That's mm. definitely something you need to do before you walk into writer's room don't be too precious with your 
with your material, with your pitches, certainly not with yourself. You know, you're all in, you're in there to be a part of a team effort. Right. And uh, don't get too caught up in yourself. That's other writers will smell that within minutes and <laughs> probably a good lesson in life but yes yeah, yes it's a very good lesson <laughs> in life but if you want to keep your job and have a, right. uh, some longevity in your career don't don't hold yourself too high um, speaking of that I wanted to ask um, what are some of the reasons that staff writers uh, first-time staff writers are brought back for a second season and what are some of the things that you know again ego that might nix that. Yeah, uh, well, in my experience, you're usually brought back for for two reasons. Yeah. Okay, maybe three reasons. Um, you're brought back because you made my job easier, right? Uh, they were just a, a whatever whatever your area of specialty was. Does that so include bringing you coffee? Uh, and, uh, well, it might, depending the, on your the level. Occasional but, back rub. But, uh, no, no, definitely <laughs> not that. <laughs> um, let's be clear. <coughs> uh, but you know, it means you know whatever your area of expertise, mm -hmm. in some way, shape, or form, in the room, on the page, on location, in production, you made my job easier. You made you gave me fewer things to worry about. Right. Right. So that that's that's a big one. Um, but then also, you know, uh, where the rubber really hits the road, you know, you in the room, you uh, you were a constant f font of ideas, right? And they didn't all have to be good. You just you were sort of tireless in your efforts to like, how about this? Right. What about this? What do you think about this? Right. Like, I mean, that's that's why you're there because this is uh, there's a lot of heavy creative lifting involved in in generating you know multiple episodes of a TV series right and so you want that sort of unflagging um, not just ability to come up with ideas but sort of that palpable passion for doing it right um, so 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 that's a thing uh, you were you were good uh, you were good with the ideas and then you were great with the execution Right, so uh, it sounds obvious, but you know, uh, there's few things more delightful than reading a first writer's draft and and going to not, bed not late that night. Your a bit. <laughs> actually, let me just be clear. Actually, being able to go to bed that <laughs> oh, night, gotcha. you know, thinking, gotcha. "Wow, I can actually sleep, and I can do nice. a pass on this in the morning, and I don't yeah. have to be up all night trying right. to figure out how to fix this." Starting from scratch. Yeah, right. Gotcha. So, gotcha. so those are the three. Those are the three ob most obvious things I think I would look for. Um, what is, uh, I guess we covered that part. Let's see. Um, talking, you know, maybe using, um, uh, I guess we can't use APB as necessarily an example, um, but I know you, it can maybe be a kind of an amalgam mm -hmm. of all the different things, because I know Again, you've developed shows, you've come in at the very beginning of shows, you've come in to help shows that needed it, mm -hmm. you know, at mm -hmm. every stage. Um, uh, for writers out there who have their own pilot, you know, and, and dream of one day getting a show on the air, you know, we both know how difficult of a challenge that is. Mm -hmm. um, but, like, maybe you could explain the sort of simple steps, um, the the way it goes from a pitch to a pilot to a series and how you know, the decision makers involved and, and what that whole chain of events 
Yeah. How that okay. goes for, for a successful show. Uh, yeah. Sure. I mean, obviously, at any stage, it could just end. Yeah, and it can end. And, and frequently does. No, and there are also different ways into it. Oh, sure, um, absolutely. Uh, different paths to success, but in in general, in my experience, mm -hmm. uh, it has been about once you land on that golden idea, right? Right. Really wallow in it for a little bit. Um, really, and, and I'll explain why in a second, but mm -hmm. really uh, be clear in your mind about what is it that draws me to this idea? What is it that fascinates me most about it? Um, what is it about this particular idea that makes me, if not the best, uh, if not only the best, the only person <laughs> in the world who could possibly write this the way it should be written. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason I think you need to s sort of figure out how to answer those questions is for, your, for yourself is because they, they become the building blocks for a pitch, right? Because you're going to need to communicate all of those same answers to whoever you're trying to sell to, mm -hmm. right? What is it about this idea that has to be heard? What is it about this idea that, that only I can be the person to, to share it with you. Right. Um, all of that stuff is is super important when you're starting to, to form a pitch. And then when you've when you get down to the brass tacks of forming the pitch, then you know I have my own tried and true formulas. I'm a I'm a I'm a form I'm a folder geek. So I I uh, I literally will start every pitch because I I have a. I'm a somewhat artistic person, and I love uh, photoshopping in particular. I oh. always joke that one day when I retire, I'll just sit around photoshopping all day, <laughs> as if I would ever retire. But um, uh, I like to create a folder for myself, and I do this for a couple of different reasons. One, it begins this process, critical creative process for me, of making it real, taking it out of the ether of my mind and putting it down on paper but also giving it an identity. So I'll create logos or I'll draw images together and I'll create a folder, okay? I'll get, I'll get to the second reason why that folder can be useful in a minute. But in that folder will then be uh, a very careful distillation of my idea and I will, I will pre-write for a pitch an introduction, which is really just a, a personal conversation, a way that I'm going to engage whoever I'm pitching to with my material. What got me into this story? What is it about my personal experience that speaks directly to the story? You know, it's it's the very essence of telling a story around a campfire, right? right. Like, let me tell you, let me tell you about something that happened to me at 3.15 p.m. on Friday, December 17th, 1979. Right? And you're off to the races, whatever mm -hmm. that might be, <laughs> having just dated myself yet again. <laughs> um, so it'll begin with an introduction, right? That then turns a corner at some point and becomes the commodity and becomes an overview, which is a very brief, concise, compelling summary of here's what my show is. It's called this, I lead with the title, I follow with the premise, I touch on some of the primary characters and uh, the basic essence of the plot or the conflict at the center of the plot or the premise. Uh, and, you know, in what is essentially a paragraph's worth of work, I will have given them a very clear indication of the pair of shoes I'm trying to sell them, mm -hmm. right? Then I will dive into character, 
because that's where the show is going to live and breathe. That's who we're going to tune in to see. That's who we're going to identify with. And so, in, again, in the most concise, compelling fashion possible, I will talk about the major primary characters of the show. The whole time, I'm reading them the same way I'm asking your listeners to read a room for the first time. You're reading that room, you're reading the, and you can tell when someone's blinking their eyes or falling asleep or checking their phone or right. their email, whatever. <laughs> like, you can tell if you got them or you don't. Right, right. By the way, I would still suggest that you never pull the ripcord because if, if nothing else happens, you're gonna be, you're gonna have had better rehearsal for the next pitch meeting, right? So never, never bail out. <laughs> And believe me, I've been tempted at times. But just stick with it because it's worth the hard work. Right. Um, go through your characters. Talk in a very, very brief, and again, maybe one to two paragraphs maximum, very brief, broad stroke view of what your pilot story is. Uh, and then have at the ready, although not necessarily share with them, a series of at least a half a dozen episodic ideas that will yeah. help demonstrate, and by episodic idea, I mean literally the log line that you would read in your direct TV Right. Guide or in TV guide itself, if that still exists. Like, you know, what's a log line with a title? What you're doing is communicating that this is more than just a pilot, that there, there are as many episodes of this series as there are, insert creative analogy right, here right. based on your project. Um, so you've done all of that work, you have it in this shiny folder, right? You internalize it, you memorize it, you, you practice it in front of your mirror, in front of your roommates, in front of your you know, writing group, and in front of anybody who will frankly listen. You get it well oiled, and then you put the folder away, and then you pick a different set of friends or colleagues to pitch them, strictly from memory. And the, the more conversational and the less rehearsed, the better, right? The whole idea is by this point, you should have just, no one knows this idea better than you. Right. If someone told you to start on page three with the character descriptions, you could do that. Or if you started from the intro where you'd want to begin the pitch, you could do that. Right. You can do it backward and forward, right? Because no one knows it better than you. And the more comfort and familiarity you can get with the material, the less rehearsed it's going to feel. So that on the day when it's time to go in and pitch, you bring in your folder, you make your pleasantries, you seize control of that, of that small talk as soon as you can. Ideally in a way that feels artful. You know, it's the art of conversation. So rather than just cut somebody off in their conversation about the weather and the traffic and say, okay, I want to pitch you this. Like, <laughs> ideally, right. you're looking around. You've done a little advanced research on the people you're meeting with. You know who they are. You're thinking about what might be a way into this mm -hmm. based on what I know about this person. Or I'm looking around their office and I'm seeing what's on their desk or on their shelves. Right. and. It strikes a common chord with something that's in my mind about my You're looking for a segue. You're looking for a way to sort of naturally guide a conversation, which you should be 100% in control of from the moment you walk into the room, right? Right. But you ultimately then share all of that with them, and this is where the second part of that folder pays off, right? Um, I always, I have the folder in the meeting. I have it there for two reasons. One in case of the rare, complete, cerebral meltdown brain fart where you forget everything. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often. Again, the more you know, the more you've rehearsed, sure. the less likely that's gonna be. But let's just say it happens in case of emergency break glass, you got it right there, right? right. It's happened. Um, but really what it's there for is you're gonna come into the room, you're gonna toss that thing down. I usually intentionally toss it down on the coffee table or on the couch uh, right next to me 
and I toss it down intentionally with the whatever the design or the logo or the title of the folder is facing them, mm -hmm. right? I don't make a big thing out of it. Sure. I just toss it down so that they can glance down and see, oh, there's a folder for this. Mm -hmm. Oh, there's a, there's a title. Oh, that's an interesting evocative image. I wonder what that is. And what they're really seeing is, what the, and what the folder should become at that point is the forbidden fruit. Gotcha. Because inevitably, by the end of your pitch, especially if they like it, they're going to say, well, this is really great. Do you have some of this in right? Could I, could I, do you have a copy of that that I could have? And then I take the folder and I pick it up and I go, oh, you know, these are just my pitching notes. But I'd be happy to send you something back at the office if you're interested. And then out you go, and you've got your folder <laughs> with you, <laughs> right? And what the folder has suddenly communicated, and I, this is just, it feels manipulative because it is, because that's what a pitch is. Sure. A pitch is, a, is, a, is an effort to it's sell a something. sales pitch, right? Right. Um, you know, what it represents is a couple of things. One, they see that you've done a lot of work, sure. that you really are the expert you profess to be, right? And you have done a lot of work, so you're not lying. No, no, no. Um, but they also see that it's already a thing. It's already a commodity. It's, it's, a it's more. Than, it's a tangible thing. idea gotcha. that they could hold in their hands if they were willing to pay for it. Right. 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 So that that's a so that's a that's a quick overview of w what you would get in sixteen weeks in my class at USC. But basically, that's where that process begins. And and you know then after that, it's about somebody saying yes and somebody buying that pitch and I've had pitches bought in the room and I've had them bought weeks later when you had long since forgotten and assumed they weren't interested. Right. Um, but from that point forward then, you know, often one of the problems with pitching is that you're, you're essentially selling a car that hasn't been fully constructed yet. Mm -hmm. So then you get into the process of trying to figure out how to put the wheels on and make sure it can actually roll and, uh, and that, can be, that can be its own unique creative challenge sometimes, but that's, that's, I don't know if that answered any of what you were asking. That, an that answered most of it. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, okay, so um, I guess I will wanted to move on. We're both uh, Trojans. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, and this is the Unscripted Podcast, where we're going to chat chat about whatever we want. We talked Cubs. Now, um, are you surprised? Because I am personally about the uh, Trojan football team, that huge turnaround from one and three to seven and three, yes. then Pac-12 title hunt. Yes. You know, they just uh, uh, beat uh, the, the Huskies. The Huskies. That's you know, right. Number four ranked University of Washington Huskies went down in a ball of flames. Right. And it was glorious. Are you surprised at the turnaround? And, and uh, no, after oh, really? being after being well, the, here's why: because okay. after being in Chicago 108 yeah. years later to see them win the <laughs> right. World Series, gotcha. I, then anything is possible, right? Sure. But that's the joy of sports in general. And you know, you're talking to a guy who was an alum during you know some of the quote unquote glory days of USC, and there have been many. Sure over the decades, but, you know, I, I was there for the Pete Carroll of it all, and I was there for those, you know, I I, I won't say it was boring, but I, I, I honestly, there were so few times I ever went to a game where we actually lost, you know, right. that every game was a raucous party. <laughs> um, so, you know, those things tend to be cyclical, and, uh, and then you're going to be down and out for a while, and... Yeah, you know, okay, so they weren't expected to do well this season, but you can never rule out anybody, especially not the USC Trojans. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, I, if I'm surprised, I'm pleasantly surprised, but I'm not 
super, super surprised. Especially, I mean, there's some tremendous talent no, on the field. No, that's absolutely true. They've had yeah. a lot of depth and a lot of talent. It just, they look like a train wreck the first few games of the season. It's like, is this yeah. going to get better? Yeah. I, I, I was skeptical. Well, I got to admit. No, that's fine. You, you, you be at that <laughs> end of the spectrum, and I'll be the guy over here going, you can do it. <laughs> I believe in you. And you were right. <laughs> and you were right, and I have to eat my words. Um, any thoughts on this year's USC basketball team? You know, I love it, it basketball. It just started. I love basketball. Yeah. I have never really, even when I was a student there, I've yeah. never really followed SC basketball. Okay. It's For a me, school. well, yeah, I mean, it is. And also, having grown up in Oklahoma, it was, we didn't have any pro teams at ah, that time. Yeah. The, even the Thunder didn't exist uh, yet. And there were certainly no pro football teams. And you definitely weren't going to root for the Cowboys. Uh, who right. were the closest? So it was all about you know, especially going to a six A champion, multiple championship, you know, sort of Friday light, Friday night lights football school. Right. Like it was all about football, and then gotcha. going to OU for a couple of years when Barry Switzer was still the coach. Oh, that sure. was like. So when I came out here finally, and then got into SC film school, like it was all about what was happening in the Coliseum, not yeah. what was happening over at Galen Center, which didn't even exist. No, then. it was the sports arena. Yeah, that's I right. <laughs> back in the, that place was a dump. Yeah, it was. It was. <laughs> uh, but I was I was fond of it. Yeah, I was fond of it. It was like a time portal back into the the uh, mid seventies. It literally was. Arena. It literally was. Um, but yeah, I'm 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 super excited for SC, and 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 maybe a little more so. This year, just because uh, because of my responsibilities here on APB, this is the first time in 11 years that I've had to take a break from teaching for a semester. Okay. So I super super miss it, and yeah. uh, and and therefore, you know, any and I haven't had many opportunities to actually sit down and watch an SC game yet this season. And my God knows, my sons have been particularly after me to actually take them to one. Right. By the way, faculty seats not very good. Really? No, no, they give us the nosebleeds. Because you know the students are the ones that get, they they're the ones that belong down on the fifty yard line with their flags and everything else. But still nosebleeds. <laughs> yeah, nosebleeds. Uh, you know, it is what it is. But oh, uh, I haven't been to a game yet this uh, this season. I would love to get out and see one. Um, and uh, we have a couple of listener questions I wanted to run by you. Oh boy. Let's see here. Um, uh, do you have any example? Well, I guess you sort of talked about that one. It, it says, "Do you have any examples of being good in a room or mm -hmm. performing well in a writer's room?" I think you covered a lot of that. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, be the problem solver. Like I said, not the problem acknowledger or the problem creator. Sure. Um, be that, uh, you know, be the person who's, uh, my, you know, I have been referred to probably fairly as a golden retriever. Uh, um, <laughs> which is to say that like you can keep throwing the ball as many times as you want and I'll keep chasing after it and bringing it back and then I might finally collapse on the rug for about two minutes and pant heavily and then I'm back up and ready <laughs> to run for the ball again. That's the energy that you want out of a staff writer, definitely, right. or frankly, that's what I want out of everybody in the room, but certainly out of somebody who's new to the room in that I want them to be like I said earlier, I think unflagging in their efforts to just sort of keep coming up with ideas. Right. And I don't expect I don't expect all of them to be good. And in fact, often more often than I probably care to acknowledge, even bad eyes bad ideas result in good ones. Right. You just want people to just keep putting them out there. Right. It's a volume business. TV. <laughs> it absolutely is. That's great. Um. Uh. And here. A lot of these you've already covered because you, you're so 
you, you're so I talk too damn much? No, you're so good <laughs> at getting to the heart of the matter that you've already uh. answered a lot of these. Um, like, what must a new writer joining a staff do well in his or her first year to excel at the job? But yeah, again, you cover energy, a lot of that. passion, yeah. work your ass off, be the first one there in the morning and the last to leave. When you're finished, still be looking for what wh what what else you can do, right. and you know, and not just focused on the showrunner, but focused as much uh, or more on all of your fellow writers, right. you know, um, because making their lives easier in turn makes my life easier. And and trust me when I tell you, I'll hear about it. Right. Showrunners hear about everything, whether they want to or not. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a thing. Um, what writing samples do showrunners usually look for? Oh, well. Like what do you read? Here's the thing. Like, you start staffing up for a show, yeah. and God bless them, you know, all of those uh, assistants who work for every agency in town are arriving at your doorstep with heavy, although it's not so much now. Now, thankfully, you can get it electronically, but still, you're being bombarded with material. Right. Right. And, um, and maybe you get one or two samples from a writer. And if, if you get one or two samples from a writer, uh, it, let's say I have a choice between uh, reading something from you that is uh, an existing show spec or your original drama spec pilot. I'm going to read the original. Uh, I'm going to, and by read that, I mean I'm going to I'm going to give you 15 or 20 pages. Mm -hmm. And if I'm if I'm really drawn in and I'm really impressed, I'll go ahead and read the whole thing. Um, and then, if I've read the whole thing and I'm still sufficiently impressed, mm -hmm. I might pick up your existing show spec and flip through the first five, ten pages of it just to see how you capture someone else's voice. But what I'm most interested in is your own unique voice. So that's why I always gravitate toward whatever is that original piece of material, right. whether it's an original pilot or a play or you know whatever it is. Um, that's the... That's the kind of thing that I, I think probably most showrunners gravitate toward because, I'll put it this way, the last thing you want to read, last thing I would want to read is somebody's spec of APB. <laughs> right. Um, right. You know, it's good to know that somebody has some, you know. Familiarity. Uh, yeah, yeah, an ability, but I, I would rather you save, save your uh, opportunity to, you know, communicate that passion for our, our meeting face-to-face -face when you right. can tell me all the things you love about the show. Now, you had mentioned play, and I know a lot of playwrights uh, move come to television. Mm -hmm. Is that something that, like, do you read samples that are plays or screenplays, right. uh, you know, features? I certainly have before. Yeah. Um, not so much screenplays, I think. Um, they're, they're more of a, their own unique animal. And if I'm staffing for a TV show, right. I, I want to see... As a second sample? Maybe as a second sample. Um, but I mostly want to see, you know, economy of drama and brevity of wit. Sure. I want to see that somebody can, you know, grab me quickly. And, right. uh, and I know that on a weekly basis, I'm not going to have uh, two hours to tell a story. Right. So I want to see how quickly you can uh, embrace that energy yourself as a writer, which is why, uh, again, a, a TV sample or a play tends to uh, work a little a little better in that regard. Gotcha. Um, I know you've got uh, conference calls, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. I you're in production. Uh, I know that uh, you're super busy. 
Um, be sure to follow Trey on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Trey Calloway. Thanks again for your time, Trey. It's always awesome. I, like I said, I could, we could illuminate uh, the audience for a long, long time. Well, it's my uh, distinct pleasure. I'm happy to do it. I would happily do it again. And uh, good luck to everybody okay. out there who might be listening. I always say, as I just said to somebody I met with early this morning, this is a persistence game. And the moment you give up is the same moment someone else steps over your rotting carpus on their way up the red carpet. <laughs> Carpet. Carcass carpet. That's a hard thing to say, but you get the idea. It is definitely a blind faith optimism persistence game. So uh, uh, keep keep on trucking, keep on writing, keep on pitching, keep on going. One day, sooner or later, you will hit your mark, be in the right place at the right time with the right audience across from you, and then you're off to the races. And then the real fun begins. <laughs> right. So said the uh, Count of Sealand. The Count of Sealand. <laughs> we should devote an entire <laughs> show to that. I would happily. Yes. I find that fascinating. If you're ever in Sealand, the Republic of Sealand, drop my name. Yes. It'll get you places. A Count. You're a Count, right? I am an official Count, count of Sealand. Look it up. Look it, it up. Um, and uh, for all the latest updates, and recent, unrecently released in upcoming interviews and features. You can find us on Twitter, uh, you can find us on Facebook and Google Plus, and on website, quickinscribes.com. For the count and myself, <laughs> thanks again, and thank you all for listening. Bye!